0: Tonight, I uh, invite you to turn with me in the book of the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 6. This is a well-known passage. Uh, I'm sure you've already heard a number of people preach on that passage, including your own pastor. Um, It is a very important text. Uh, In fact, Uh, Years ago, I remember uh, reading a little booklet. I think it was entitled, What is a Calvinist? And the answer that the author gave is a Calvinist is someone who has uh, met the God of Isaiah 6. Um, So tonight, we'll read the whole chapter. uh, And in my preaching, I will uh, concentrate on verses uh, 1 through, through 9. But we'll read the whole passage because it's important. So Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? Lord. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in darkness as we deserved, but you have revealed yourself. And you have made sure that your word would be inscripturated and would be preserved throughout the centuries, unadulterated. We thank you, Father, that you give us your spirit to guide us in your truth, to open our eyes to open our ears, to open our hearts to your word so that we may see, so that we may hear, so that we may understand, that we may return and repent of our sins and be forgiven. Lead us tonight in the truth of your word and accomplish your work of redemption, your work of salvation, your work of purification in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before we turn to, the, to, those, to those verses, I would like to give a bit of context. Um, king Uzziah is actually a pretty well-known king. And uh, I will not tell you the, the story of his life, but I will let you know where you can find it. Uh, it's in Second Kings, chapter 15, and in Second Chronicles, chapter 6. And I actually strongly encourage you to read those two chapters when you go home uh, tonight as the story of the king helps understand quite a bit of what's happening in this passage in terms of what is happening in the land of Israel in the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel or the, the southern kingdom of Judah where, uh, of which Uzziah is the king but also the story of this king is, is striking. Um, so I strongly encourage you to look at that and we'll come back a bit to this king Uzziah who, by the way, in the beginning of chapter 15 of 2 Kings, is not called Isaiah. He's called a different name. The name changes without warning. But I won't tell you why. You just go and read. Um, so, the, the, the first, the obvious context here is not only not the life of Isaiah, but his death. Our, our, our section starts with, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw... The Lord, And then Isaiah is reporting his vision and what happened in his vision. It would be easy for us to think that this is merely a, uh, a chronological marker. It's just a way of saying, by the way, in the year so-and-so, or you know, the year 1999, this happened to me. And definitely, it does that to us. It helps us place that particular vision in time. But it does more than that. Another context that is important to realize, and when you read the chapters that I mentioned, you'll, you'll see that, um, is, as I was saying, what is happening in Israel. But it's also striking, related to that, to see that uh, this text, which is usually understood as being the calling of Isaiah uh, to his ministry as a prophet, at least um, the passage that defines his message, that defines what his role is to accomplish would be found in chapter six, isn't that a bit surprising? Usually, a call, especially the call of a prophet, will determine uh, the life of that prophet, will determine his message, and therefore, usually, you put it at the very beginning so that you know how to read what follows. And in fact, if you look, uh, if you read the other uh, a number of other prophetic books, you'll see that that's exactly what happens. The, chapter begin, the book begins with the call of that particular prophet, what happened at the time, and that helps you understand, that gives you a, a, an orientation to understand the, re, the remainder of the book. But here, in the book of Isaiah, we find the call of the prophet in chapter 6, not in chapter 1. That's, that's a bit surprising, and I think that deserves to be pondered. As far as we can tell, um, whether this is marking the beginning of the the ministry of the prophet or not, this is really defining what is important about his ministry and what his message is about. And in fact, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus himself makes a direct connection with that chapter about his own ministry— And one one place where he does that is when his his disciples are asking him about why he's teaching in parables. And I always find that very uh, striking and very surprising. When you ask most people, why would Jesus use parables? The number one answer is, well, because they're simple stories taken from everyday life that everybody understands. Now, the interesting point is that when Jesus has that question, he says that it's so that people will not understand And he makes a direct reference to the ministry of Isaiah and how Isaiah is called to close the eyes, to close the ears, and to close the hearts of God's people in judgment. Now, if you read the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, you will see that those chapters are all dealing with a particular problem or a particular sin in Israel, in Judah, but also among the nations. And that particular sin is, so to speak, the mother of all sins or the substance of all sins, the heart of all sins. It's idolatry. So when you read the book, and remember it's a book. A book, by definition, is meant to be read from beginning to end. Not, I take a little piece here and another piece there and whatever. No, they're meant to be read from beginning to an end. And there is a logic to the way Things are put together, and what you read before helps you understand what you read later. So, uh, I think the reason why this calling of of Isaiah with this message is given to us in chapter 6 is so that we can be prepared to receive it and to understand it. And the context for that vision and that message is the idolatry of mankind in general, but especially of Judah, God's own chosen people. Now this is very important to understand. Idolatry is not only the worship of other gods than God. You know, the first commandment. Idolatry is also the worship of God in a way that is Contrary to his commandment, that is contrary to his covenant, that is contrary to his revelation. And related to... That's the second commandment, by the way. And that is related to the way we think about God. Remember when uh, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest of the commandments? He says, you will love your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your Mind. The way we think about God matters. The way we think about God is part of our service to this God. It's part of our worship of this God. And so in contrast to the the idolatry of Israel and Judah and the nations who have many, many different gods, or in the case of Judah and Israel, who are still worshiping Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses and established a covenant in, on Mount Sinai, they do so in a way that is not according to his covenant. They worship him and other gods. And that's, that's a chorus that you hear throughout the, book, uh, the books of uh, Kings and, and, and Chronicles. And in fact, you see that already in Judges and Samuel. That whatever God did, whatever his prophets did, the people of Israel, still worshipped idols, still worshipped on hills and under all kinds of green trees. And in contrast to all those false gods, in contrast to this false understanding of the true God and false worship of this true God who is treated like if he were one of those false gods, a little God that you can control, a little God that you can manipulate, a little God that you can uh, uh, that depends on you, you know, the gods of the pagans and Isaiah will make fun of them in a number of places. They, those gods can't do anything for themselves. You have to wash them. You have to give them their bath. You have to dress them and undress them. You have to feed them and, and you have to move them around so they can get a bit of sun and air. Now, we, we, we think he's, he's making it up. He's not. That's, that's exactly the way people took care of those idols. Even the Greeks did that. You may not know, you may, I don't know if you know that, but in the Greek temples, part of the worship, part of the care of the idols was to dress them and undress them and, and wash them and all kinds of things. So he's not just making fun of them. He's just showing the absurdity of what they're actually doing on a daily basis. And he's saying those are idols and you're treating Yahweh, God, the creator of the universe, like those idols. And in contrast to this false worship, Isaiah is blessed with this vision of the true God in his temple, sitting on his throne. Now, the temple is not only the place where God is worshipped in Israel and in Old Testament theology. It is his palace. This is where he sits as the king of his people. And as a king, this is the place where he judges his people. And in fact, if you read uh, the prophecy of the Old Testament, you will see that there's the belief, the understanding, that when God comes to judge the world, he will come to his temple to judge the world. So here in Isaiah 6, God reveals himself to Isaiah in a way that is striking. First, remember when we read chapter 6, we've already read five chapters of judgment upon judgment against idolatrous people. And here we come to chapter 6, and Isaiah enters the temple, and when he enters the temple, he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train, or the hem of his robe, filled the temple. Again, Isaiah comes in there, King Uzziah died that year. Now, if you read the story of uh, King Uzziah, you'll see that he was a pretty successful king. He brought peace and prosperity to the kingdom. He reigned for more than 50 years. That's a long reign at that time, especially. And he's quite successful. Now, the prime is that his success will go up to his head and he'll do something stupid and will be punished for it. But still, it's a time of prosperity, of peace, of stability for, for Judah when the world around is kind of starting to fall apart and Israel, in particular, uh, is, is, is uh, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, is breaking down and Assyria is becoming a real threat. Assyria is starting to impinge on the territory, on the authority of the place. So, having a powerful king who brings peace is quite significant. And when that that king dies, that's a scary thing. It's a very risky time when a king dies because there's the whole issue of succession. Who will come on the throne? Will there be a war of succession? Will there be murder or intrigue? But also, will the new king be able as as the father was? And as Israel is facing this time of uncertainty... God appears to Isaiah sitting on his throne. He's reminding Isaiah who the king is. The king is not Isaiah. The king is Yahweh. Human kings come and go. But the king of Israel, the king of his people, doesn't change. And he's not a small king. He's not a little king. He's not... You know, the king of Israel, really, he was chosen by God, but he was ruling over a very small piece of land. But here we have the king who is the king of the whole world, the king who rules over the whole world, over all the nations. And this is depicted for us here with this image of a throne that is high and lifted up. It's not a small throne that would be at the level of the people. It's not even a a throne that would be high like this. This is a gigantic throne. This is majestic. This is glorious. And the throne speaks of the glory and the majesty and the authority and the power of the king that sits on it. If you pay attention, you realize that though Isaiah tells us that he saw the king, he actually mentions that uh, a few verses later, though Isaiah says that he doesn't tell us anything about what that king looks like, He's depicting everything around that king, but not the king himself. It's quite striking. But of course, the surrounding of that king, his court, his temple, the glory of his garment speaks of the glory of the king himself. It's like a a, a picture in contrast. We're not telling you much about him, but what we tell you about what's around him tells you a lot about who he really is. And one thing that speaks about him is the, the size of his throne. And the hem of his robe fills the temple. His presence, if you like, his glorious presence is overwhelming. It's, it's everywhere. It's taking up the whole space. In fact, um, this is an image used in the Old Testament of God's presence, of God's glory being somewhere. When and Later we'll see the, uh, the smoke that appears. That's another image of God's presence in his temple or in his, in his tabernacle. It is God being there. It's, it's a bit like a theophany, like the one that uh, Moses saw on Mount Sinai. God is there, and he's present, and, and, and his presence is overwhelming. And uh, one thing you, uh, that is maybe helpful here is also to realize that the temple, though it's the place, the one place where God covenanted to meet his people, that temple is not meant to limit God to that one place that temple is actually symbolically a representation of the entire universe. The language used to describe the temple and and its architecture is there to tell us that it's really a picture of the whole universe, of the whole world. And God's presence there and God's uh, um, fulfilling presence is 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 a symbol or a sign of his presence in the whole world. In fact, in the worship of the seraphim, we are told that his glory... Now, I'll, I will use the more of a literal Hebrew translation of the Hebrew. Uh, our English, it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. The Hebrew puts it in a way that is quite striking. His glory, the fullness of the earth. The glory of God, the presence of God, is the substance, what gives reality, what gives uh, existence, magnitude to anything that exists. He is everywhere. And he is the one who allows anything and everything to exist and have meaning and have significance. So, yes, King Uzziah Uzziah was a successful king. And yes, he died. And yes, there's great uncertainty now for the future. But the true king is there. And he rules not just Judah, not just Israel but the whole world, the whole universe, for that matter. Around this king, we see his court. We see his servants. And obviously, the servants will tell a lot about their master. If you have servants of a king or a president who are dressed in shabby clothes and are ill-mannered and... can't express himself clearly, that tells you a lot about the incapacity the in, uh, of, the, of, the, of the, the master of those, those, those servants. And here we see seraphim. Now, that's actually the one place in the Old Testament when that term is used. So, in some ways, it doesn't help us much because it doesn't tell us, we don't have text to go to to see what those seraphims would be like. And the word is unknown to us outside of this passage. Um, It seems to be related to fire. It seems to be related to light. It it might be related to the fact that they're glorious in the sense of being shiny, uh, luminous beings. But what is striking about those beings is that being um, angelic beings, being spiritual creatures, and creatures who exist in the very presence of God, in the immediate presence of God, who are at his service... The Bible describes them as when God says a word, they just go and do. There's no delay. There's no debate. There's no question. They're perfectly obedient, unlike our children. (laughs) They do exactly what he wants. They exist in his presence. They reflect his glory with their very beings. And yet, with two wings, they cover their face. With two wings... They cover their eyes. They do not dare look at this great God. His glory, his majesty is so immense, infinite, that even angels like them who are pure, perfect, spiritual beings cannot gaze upon him. More than that, with two two more wings, they cover themselves. They hide themselves. They do not deem themselves to be worthy of being looked upon by their Lord and Master. The glory of those beings and their behavior in the presence of God is striking. And He's telling us about this kind of God. This God is so powerful. He's so pure. He's so majestic. He's so glorious. That even his closest servants cannot dare to look at him or be seen by him. He's not one of those idols that need the help of his own creatures. He is the king, the king, not a king, the king of kings. And we hear, or Isaiah hears, their worship, their call. They call to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He's not just holy. He's thrice holy. And in Hebrew, it's a way of saying that he's absolutely holy his pure holiness and he is the lord of hosts which is another title of god which talks about his covenant covenantal uh, lordship over all of creation and the whole world is the expression or is dependent on his presence and his glory and no wonder that the foundations of the thresholds of the temple itself are shaking at the voice of the person, who, of, the, of the angel, who, claim, who proclaims this. This morning, actually, um, uh, the church where I was attending, we, we, we sung a hymn. And there was one phrase that really shocked me I, as I was preparing. I, was, I had it already in mind, the sermon tonight. And the, the hymn says, makes reference to that passage and speaks of the sweet voice I say, sweet voice? The cry of the seraphim is shaking the the very foundations of the temple? That's not a sweet voice. That sounds more like the rumble of the storm. um, Or the wail of the hurricane. And you know what it sounds like. In fact, the first time I came in the area... uh, The first time my family and I came to this area, we we, we came a few weeks after Charlie Francis had come through and we had the joy of meeting Gene. So I know what it is too. But the very building is shaking at the voice not of God, but of his servant, of his slave. So what would it be like if God himself were to speak? And the house is filled with smoke. There is another time when this is happening. It is when the tabernacle is inaugurated by Moses and Aaron. And as they are doing the rituals that God commanded, the tabernacle is filled with smoke. And they have to get out. They can't stay in there. They don't see anything. And they know that God is present and his presence is such that he cannot remain in the In the tabernacle, even though they're pure, they've been consecrated, they've been purified, they've gone through all the rituals, and yet they cannot stay. They have to get out. And here, that same smoke is there, representing the presence of God. The same cloud that we see in uh, the book of Exodus, leading the people in the desert. The cloud that covers them, protects them from the sun. The cloud that is fire at night, leading them. The cloud that is, we are told in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit himself. The same Holy Spirit who was hovering over creation in the very beginning. The same Holy Spirit that gave life to Adam. The same Holy Spirit that is above the people of Israel when they're going through their own rebirth, their new creation, when they go through the Red Sea and they're baptized in Moses, we're told in the New Testament. The same Holy Spirit that will be on Jesus. And that will be present with Jesus in a way that is unequaled the same Holy Spirit that Jesus sends to his church. That presence is there. What? I don't want to psychologize the story, but I still have to think, what, what would I do if I encountered that? You know, I'm coming, let's say we'll, we'll change the context. Let's say I'm coming to church on Sunday, okay? And as I come in the building... I have that vision of God on his throne within all his glory and majesty. What would I do? Well, I think I would do what Isaiah does, the only sensible thing. He starts jumping up and down, saying, oh, it's glorious, it's great. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. He's not pleading. Have you noticed that? He's not pleading with God, saying, "Hey, hey, I, I know, I know, Israel and Judah, where they're all worshiping, but I'm not. I'm the good guy here. I'm your servant. I'm the faithful one. And I've done all the sacrifices you asked me to do." He's not. He's not even pleading. Oh, I know you're a merciful God. Have mercy on me. He's just saying. Woe is me. He despairs of himself. He recognizes that he is hopeless. He has nothing to offer. He has no claim in himself for any mercy, any grace. And remember, he knows that when God comes to his temple, it is to judge his people. And he knows that his judgment will start with Jerusalem, with his own people, and will extend from there to the, to the end of the earth. If God is there, judgment is coming. And he just recognizes it. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Everybody knows that you cannot see God and live. In fact, it is found in several places in the Old Testament, including in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember the story when uh, Moses asked God, God God asked Moses what he wants, and Moses said, I just want to see you. It's an incredible story. Um, And God is merciful, and he shows him a form. But what is striking in that story is that just as the vision passes and so on, there's a verse that says that Moses didn't see God. Because no one can see God and live. So he saw some kind of vision, but he didn't see God himself. So Isaiah knows that he's lost. That's it. That's it. You know, it's a bit like in those movies where you have a bomb and and you know the guy just clicks on the button and says "Oh," and he's gone. Uh, I don't know if you remember that uh, there was a movie, uh, The Professional, and the guy turns. He's there's a bad guy, a bad cop, and he's killing the the good guy who's a murderer. Um, And as he turns him around, he sees the guy has an an open grenade. And he knows he's dead. I think that's about the the, the feeling of Isaiah right now. I'm done. But this is where this glorious God, this thrice holy God, this judge of the whole earth... Proves himself to be merciful. Again, not because Isaiah asks, not because Isaiah did anything. It's very clear from the passage. One of the seraphim flows, flew, I'm sorry, flies to, to, to Isaiah, having a burning coal that he had taken from the altar. And he touches the mouth of Isaiah and purifies him. And he tells him, Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Isaiah didn't do anything to atone for his sin. He didn't bring a sacrifice. He didn't even ask for forgiveness. He just confessed his sin and hopelessness. But God has already provided for him. Obviously, Isaiah did not stumble into a meeting he was not supposed to see or It's not like God was in there and, oops, surprised. No. God was waiting for Isaiah and had prepared for Isaiah. And when Isaiah comes and confesses his sin, God, through his angel, through his servant, can purify him and forgive him. Because he has provided the sacrifice. He has, God has provided for the atonement And only then, after God has purified him, has made him holy in a way that he can stand in the presence of God and not be destroyed by that presence. Only then does God speak. Personally, I think this is another sign of God's mercy. Until Isaiah is prepared to face and hear God, God is acting as if Isaiah wasn't there. He is not treating him the way he deserves, the way he should be treated, which would be instant destruction, instant whatever method he would use of to kill this man and to destroy him and to send him, cast him into hell. God has prepared, and God is patient, and he's waiting, and he's, he's being gracious and, and merciful. And only then can Isaiah hear his voice, And it's also funny that God speaks as if he doesn't know that Isaiah is around. I mean, come on. The temple is big, but there's one guy in the temple in the middle. And God says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Now, that's also striking because he has three seraphim. He could send any of them, but he's not looking for an angelic servant. He's looking for a human servant. And here, Isaiah is ready, he's able to respond in the proper manner. Here am I, send me. You see the transformation from being confronted with the glory of God and probably being overwhelmed with it, to being forgiven, purified, being able to hear God to stand in His presence and to respond to His call with boldness, this is the work of God. Now, the message that God gives him is horrible. I mean, you know, I, I think he, I mean, I'm, again, I'm thinking if I were in His shoes, you know, I would say, "Yes, send me, great, you know, I, I want to be your servant, I want to proclaim your word." And you give me, you give me that message. I said. Uh, you sure? That's not what I signed up for. This is a message of utter judgment. It's not simply that he's called to um, uh, close their ears and close their eyes and close their heart for a time. And we see, you know, Isaiah will, in, will say, uh, how long? W- when does it end? You know, okay, I'm going to preach that for a while. But uh, at some point you're going to say, uh, you know, I'm going to change the message. Aren't you? And God says, until the whole country is devastated, until cities are empty, the land is laid waste, and even whatever remains after that, whatever is not destroyed or taken in captivity away from the land, even that will be burned. Wow. That's a message. But this is what his, that's what his people deserve for their idolatry. In fact, the language used here—the language of closing the eyes, the ears, the heart, the not understanding—the image of a tree that is fell and then that it is burned, that the stump and the stump is burned—are all images of judgment against the idols. This is how idols are treated in God's judgment. And people who worship those idols are just like them. Just as much as an idol is a dead piece of wood and cannot hear or see, their worshipers become dull of hearing and blind. Just like there's no life in them, there's no love, there's no thought, there's nothing like that. Idol worshippers become the same. They become dead spiritually. And in the same way as they will be cut down and burned, their idolaters will be cut down and burned. This is a terrible message. Now, later in the book, God will will give Isaiah prophecies for after the judgment that will be a bit more encouraging. In chapter 40... Chapter 40 starts with comfort, comfort, my people. Well, comfort, 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 my people three times. And then God will speak about what he will do after he judges people. But even here, we have this picture of this majestic, glorious, righteous God coming in judgment, announcing how he will be punishing his own people for their idolatry. But there's a little phrase at the end, the very end. And that phrase is actually not technically part of the message that God gives. It's not part of the phrase. It is added afterwards. It's more of an explanation. It's a way of saying, oh, by the way, this is what it's about. And that little phrase, the holy seed, is its stump. What is the Holy Seed? Or better, who is the Holy Seed? Well, you can go back a few few books. The first one would be obviously the people of Israel. They're the Holy Seed. They're the holy people and it's their descendants who would be the Holy Seed. That's part of why, what's on par. That's actually the the, the heart or the purpose of the Mosaic Law and of, uh, of circumcision and all this stuff is to have a Holy Seed. But you can go a bit further down the road. You can get to Abraham and the promised descent that will be a blessing to all nations. Or you can go even further down the road and you can go back to Genesis chapter 3. The descendants of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. The stump here that will be burned in judgment, in utter final judgment is the Holy Seed. And we know who that Holy Seed is. It is Jesus Christ. So yes, yes, there is judgment. There is tremendous judgment being announced. And there will be tremendous judgment being poured upon that people. And it's the promise also of a final judgment that will be even worse than that. But... The grace of God is present. The Holy Seed will receive the judgment on account of God's people. The Holy Seed will be the sacrifice that provides atonement for our sins. The Holy Seed is the reason why Isaiah and we can hear the voice saying, your sins... Are forgiven. Your sins are taken away. Your guilt is taken away. The judgment is taken away from you, not because God has just erased it, saying, "I didn't." Like we do sometimes with children, you know, they do something and we think, "I had not a big deal. Move on." No, judgment—final, total, complete judgment—has been poured on one on account of all. So as we wrap up, what kind of God do you have? Who is your God? Is it a cosmic Santa Claus? Some sort of doting grandfather or grandmother who just gives whatever children want? Or is it just an evil, aloof judge who is just waiting to see anything wrong you'll do so he can punish you? Is it a God that you can manipulate to get what you want? Is it a God that is there to serve you and do do everything so that you can be happy and so you can have success? Or is it the God who created all things? The God who is Lord of Lords. The God who rules and reigns over the whole universe. The God who is judging. who Who will judge everyone and everything in this world. And the God who has given what was most precious to him to save his people. Is this your God? Because if this is your God, this will change your life. This will change the way you look at everything. This will change the way you think, the way you behave. And Sunday when you come in this building for worship, you know that you are meeting this God. You may not see him with your physical eyes, but he's here. He is the one who called you to come and worship Him. He's waiting for you. And He's with you everywhere you go, anytime, because His glory is the fullness of the earth. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how can we call you our Father and our God? Our hearts are full of sin and idolatry. Our hearts are full of doubts and questions and our minds in our sinfulness and corruption. Twist your truth, twist your revelation. We treat you often as if you were an idol, as if you were a God like the gods of the nations, a God that we can control, the God that we can use for our own purposes. But you are the Lord of hosts. You are the King of kings. You are the creator. You are the Lord of all things. You are the judge of all things. But you are a loving and merciful King. You have given Jesus Christ to save us. So that we could call you our God. But also so that we could call you our Father. Bless us, Father. And help us to know your love every day of our life. Help us to give praise and thanks to your name for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. But also, and maybe even more, for who you are. Praises be to your name. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.